Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I continue my conversation with experts on civil-military relations. Alice Hunt Friend, Senior Fellow in the International Security Program at CSIS, Visiting Research Professor at the U.S. Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute, and a former civilian Pentagon official. Phil Carter, adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center, a former Army officer, and also a former civilian Pentagon official. And Major General retired Charlie Dunlap, executive director of the Center on Law, Ethics, and National Security at Duke University School of Law, and former Deputy Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Air Force. Thanks to everyone for joining me again today for our continuation of our conversation on civil-military relations in the U.S. We spent our last episode really focused on the events of the last month, trying to digest exactly what they have all meant over the summer of 2020. And now I want to spend some time looking ahead. Sometimes the conversation on civil-mil can feel grim. And I want to start maybe with a little bit more of a hopeful note. And let me start with you, Charlie. What do you think is going right in civil-military relations today? Well, I think what's going right is that the American people still have very high confidence in their armed forces. I think some of that is due to the idea that I think American people want to have something in government that works, that they can believe in. And the military right now happens to be that entity. I think the military is doing a good job at reaching out. It's doing a good job internally. It's crushed the COVID-19 pandemic as best as it could. It's still performing its function with very low infection rates, very low death rates. And so it's still serving as an example. And it really is still the place that people can go and achieve the American dream. You can enlist in the armed forces and end up, you know, as a four-star general. It's still possible. I think it is true. We, we do need more diversity at the top. That's a very complicated issue because obviously it starts at people 25, 26 years old and what they decide to do with their life. But I think we, we should be very hopeful about our armed forces. Now, it has a lot of challenges. The budget's going to be a huge challenge dealing with the state actors and the multiplicity of threats is going to be quite challenging going forward in this new normal. Alice, what strikes you as going well? Well, as somebody who's worked regional desks in the Pentagon and seen places that have much less developed security sectors than our own, I'm always really heartened in the United States by the robustness of the civilian side of the relationship. And, you know, for those of us that work out in think tank land right now, I'm really heartened by the next generation of researchers and aspiring practitioners and policymakers who want to get into defense and defense policy on the civilian side. I think the fact that we have such a robust cadre 
of experts on defense issues who wear business suits is a really healthy thing for civil relations in the United States. So whenever I get despairing, I think about my incredible intern of last summer and all the amazing research assistants we have at CSIS and that are all over town getting ready to take over from those of us that are limping along. (laughs) Bill? Alice reminds us that it can always be worse somewhere else. And I think (laughs) it can always be worse some other time too. So whenever I think of how bad civil relations are now, I think back to the Vietnam era, which I studied, didn't live through. But I think one thing that is good now is the place of service members in society. I think the continued distinction between criticizing the war, but not criticizing the service member is a good thing. And I think that for all that we've debated, the wisdom of our forever wars or our endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the wisdom of our defense strategies in Asia and Europe, we haven't brought that rancor to our feelings about service members and their families, and we've continued to treat them well. And I think that's a very positive thing that will have positive consequences for recruiting and retention in decades to come. Bill, you're such an expert on veterans issues. I'm so glad you commented on that. And you often will hear, even in popular news, to the extent that civil military relations makes popular news, this quote around the 1%, meaning that only 1% of the U.S. population serves in the military today. Also, the Census Bureau you know, approximates that it's about 7% of U.S. adults in 2018 who were veterans. That compares to about 18% in 1980. And obviously, if you look back to the World War II generation, a massive, you know, 80 plus percent of males who were veterans in the United States. You know, as the military takes up a smaller percent of the population, the population is growing. Presumably, we don't want to be in a massive war with a bigger percent of our population in the military. How does that shift the way in which society interacts with the military? And is it a cause for any concern? It's a hard question, Kath. I think you put your finger on the secular trends that are likely to continue here, the expanding U.S. population, the relatively constant size in the military, and the episodic natures of conflicts that mean I think in the future, we're going to have a smaller military as a fraction of society. It's going to have a smaller fraction of American mindshare. And there will be long periods of time when the military is not on the front page of the news because we're not at war. And that's okay. And that healthy civil military relations might look something like the military not dominating the budget battles or not getting primacy at every table and maybe not even getting free meals at Applebee's and priority boarding for plane flights. And that's okay. I think the long-term normalization of the relationship while continuing to honor the terms of the social contract and provide veterans health care and veterans disability compensation and those other things, if we can find that healthy balance over the long term, I think that will be better off. Charlie, you've actually just written on this issue of how the military is or isn't different than, say, doctors, nurses, firefighters, others. This is an active debate right now in the civil military relations community. As small as it is, it's a very robust community. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on this issue? What's different about the military? Well, I think that the fundamental mission of the military is different from anything else in society. You're talking about, at the end of the day, it's about killing other human beings and being part of that process. And so that is fundamentally different, as well as the legal differences. When you join the military, you can't quit. 
if you're a firefighter or a policeman, you can always walk away if it gets to be too much or, or so forth. You can't quit, you have to do it. And then of course, you know, now with the global responsibilities, I think the Washington Post said that the U.S. is responsible for defending a quarter of humanity. You're going to always have this overseas deployment and so forth and the separation. If you're a, a doctor at the local hospital, you do have challenges. It does require, you know, courage to, especially during a pandemic, but your your family and your friends and so forth are going to be there. It is fundamentally different. So I disagree with Phil a little bit. I do hope that things like the free meals at, at Applebee's and and we can exclude all officers from getting any of this. But for the young enlisted people, I think it's important because it is harder and harder to get people to join. And, and I think there's lots of reasons for it. One of the studies shows that millennials don't want to leave home. And so that's hard to get over when you're asking people to serve in the military. So I do hope that there still continues to be some of that because I do think it is different. That's not to say that we shouldn't honor policemen, firemen, first responders, people at the grocery stores and, and medical health personnel. It's just that I do think military service is fundamentally different. And I think the public recognizes that. You know, and Alice, you're, you're welcome to comment on any of that, but you've also written and researched quite a bit on the civilian's role in civil military relations and in civics and in understanding the role of the military. How does that intersect this idea of a shrinking size of the military, some distance between those who have experienced the military and those haven't? What does the civilian community owe the military for civil military relations? You know, it's funny, I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago that was inspired, I suppose, by a comment that the president made after the ambush against American forces in Niger, where we lost four soldiers. And he commented that the soldiers knew what they were getting into when they signed up, which many saw as a pretty dismissive thing to say. And I saw it as sort of a, a way to distance ourselves from responsibility. And I mean ourselves as the sort of collective citizenry of the United States who have not signed up to risk life and limb or risk of moral injury for that matter. And so, you know, I wrote this piece where I said, you know, I, I do think it's different and we do have a collective responsibility. Those of us that don't go forward into the field certainly have responsibility to recognize that indeed these individuals accept a higher degree of risk on average for their job and that it's on behalf of American national security. It's not the same as accepting risk for other purposes or other reasons, right? So I, much to his shock, I'm sure, tend to agree with Charlie on, on that. However, I also think that the pandemic has started a really important conversation because I do think we tend to overdetermine the amount of worship that we do of folks that wear a uniform. And I think military worship is not the same thing as, in fact, fulfilling our responsibilities to the veteran and his family. I think that's kind of separate from just saying, we're going to consider you heroes. We're not going to learn much about you, but we're going to think of you as heroic and separate from ourselves. And also as a class of people that accept burdens that we will outsource to you. And we are all comfortable with that. I think there's a distancing there that's unhealthy. 
And I think for the entire country to see that there are lots and lots of Americans that take on risk on behalf of all of us, that there are lots and lots of Americans who also commit great personal sacrifices under various conditions that aren't necessarily warfare, but that are crisis, I think has been very good for doing a little bit of early recalibration and thinking through you know, why do we admire a class or a cadre of people? What is it about the, the performance of duty under different conditions that we should reward and extol? I think that's been a really important thing to think about. And I think it's, it's meant that we've been able to actually also think more critically about why we so admire folks in uniform. If I could jump back in for just a moment, I don't really think that people worship people in the military. I, I think that goes a little bit too far. I do think that we do need to recognize other people in society, but it's not all about the physical risk. I think it's what you put yourself into when you join the military, how the constitutional rights that you give up, and and you can never really get out of it unless the government decides they're going to let you out of it. So it, it is different in that way. And I do want to point out, you know, the importance of moral courage. And this is where we have not done a good job especially with respect to our civilians who are in the defense enterprise. I mean, they are giving up an awful lot and subjecting themselves to an awful lot of criticism, second guessing, and everything else, yet they don't get you know, kind of the value of wearing the uniform. And I am concerned about making sure that we have the right kinds of civilians who are willing to step into these extremely important jobs. And I'll say one thing for the think tanks in D.C., and I'll probably get killed for this, but I do think there's a lot of expertise there, quite honestly, (laughs) especially relative to what I see elsewhere in academia. I mean, I am astonished at people in D.C. that I knew, the civilians that I knew in government, and including my fellow speakers here, they really invested themselves in understanding the military, the weapons, and so forth. There's a lot of academics out there who don't do that investment. And if I could just tell one one story that to me illustrates it, I speak a lot on drones and I went to a major university and my other debater was saying something like, drones are roaming the earth, killing at random. So finally I said, you do know there's a pilot, right? He goes, well, that's what you say. That's what your claim is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard really to deal with that. So we do need to, I think, do a better job at recognizing, recruiting, motivating civilians to play the roles we have to have them, especially in a democracy. And I do think the tax side of it, I mean, I know that's just an anecdote, but I really do think it highlights the degree to which technological focus that is increasingly a part of the military's edge, I guess I would say, that then comes at some risk of separating military and civilian if it's in areas that civilians aren't, you know, aren't building out those capacities. So it's a further differentiator. I think we could go on this. That's like a whole podcast unto itself. And my big takeaway is Applebee's should be sponsoring Alice's Thank You for Your Service podcast. (laughs) No worries. I'm here for you. Um, but I do I do want to kind of get to the political 
period that we're in. It's a presidential election season, Phil. You know, we go through this every four years, let alone the midterm cycles. And every single time we go through this, right, we have these discussions around retired military, the appropriate role of retired military, the use of active military as a backdrop or photo op. I saw the other day a presidential campaign ad, for instance, that had a uniformed person in the ad just walking, but in the ad. And you're bound to see that, you know, in various places. What are the priorities you think ought to be foremost in the minds of those in uniform, those running campaigns, who I know are all going to be avid listeners, that you hope to see set good practice for the coming season? That's a great question. And, you know, the the essential legal problem here is that the campaigns aren't governed. The military is governed, and it's kind of like having a child abuse law that is only aimed at the child, when in fact it's the parents you've got to worry about. So in this case, the campaigns have a First Amendment right to put that service member or that video of the military person into their ad, as does every independent expenditure organization. And there's nothing that the DOD can do about it, nor should it try, because that's not DOD's role. I think we're going to see it happen, even though the military and veterans population is a tiny fraction of the voting population, even in certain battleground states where there are a lot of troops like North Carolina, where Charlie lives. That's not the real value. The real value is as messengers and validators. And because they have such currency with the public, because of the respect accorded the military, they're going to be sought after by campaigns on all sides and by organizations that have their issues to advocate for, whether it's youth fitness or it's the outcome of the November election. And I think the best we can do as leaders in our community is to encourage our peers and our former colleagues to really not put those military personnel into bad positions, to not get them to argue for nakedly partisan goals, to not have them go so far as to chant, lock her up or him up at the national convention, and to really try to keep the guardrails on this conversation, but recognize that our theory of government requires a marketplace of ideas. We want more ideas out there and not less. And I I think it's okay to have the voices out there, provided they're smart and informed voices. Alice, let me add degrees of difficulty to this question. So you, you have in this period at the same time, a rise of voices on the left around concern that there will be, the military will be pulled in either during the election or after the election to in some way invalidate or enforce against the will of the people. The president has come out and said, I'm going to abide by the outcome of the election. But he has been known to say different things at different times, I think might be the polite way to put that. And there's a lot of polarization and skepticism on both sides. If you're sitting at the top of the Department of Defense right now, having just gone through this period in which the military and the institution of the military really specifically had a grazing crisis, a grazed past a substantial crisis on civil military relations, how do you approach that set of questions? Oh, geez. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's been sort of increasing... It was whispered before in D.C., and there's been increasingly out loud with op-eds in in the Washington Post and so forth, speculation about what if the president does not win re-election and in some way invokes the military during the transition period and, you know, 
there are thousands of different scenarios we could concoct, right? But you're right to say, well, okay, so if, if you are Secretary Esper, for example, you have to think through that. Now, under normal order, what would happen is the secretary would be busily going about working on the transition and preparing for briefings and briefing books and to hand off the management of the Department of Defense to whoever his successor was. So certainly that should be something that he does if, in fact, the president is, is not reelected and we, we move to another administration. The chairman, having now newly learned in public the delicacy of his role when it comes to partisan politics, I think should be talking about this issue as much as possible in front of military audiences reinforcing the nonpartisan orientation of the U.S. military and why it is important for them to be seen as nonpartisan, because any commander-in-chief so elected should trust the military and trust it not to be a partisan actor with partisan interests. That's why we want a nonpartisan military. So I think there's a lot of preparation that both of those senior leaders could be doing. I think every service should be working on sending out guidelines. And I've seen at least the Army has already issued a set of guidelines about maintaining nonpartisan engagement with folks in and out of uniform for soldiers up and down the chain. You know, I think all the services should do that. But, you know, if it comes down to the president asking the military to do things that it should not be doing that is not legal for it to do, my fervent hope is that the Secretary of Defense would, behind closed doors, explain to him why the Department of Defense cannot do those things he is calling for them to do, and that they can work those things out. If that doesn't happen, again, now I'm spinning out lots of scenarios, but I, I think it's very, very important for DOD leaders to consistently emphasize what their responsibilities are under the law, what their responsibilities are to the Congress. And by the way, I would love for the Congress to get really, really proactive about this as well. So I think there are a lot of different institutions and leaders in the United States that can start insulating us against any of these possibilities and helping guide anyone who would like to misuse the United States military under uh, ambiguous political circumstances. Charlie, are the guardrails in place that we need? I think so. I'm not really worried about that kind of misuse of the military. I have more confidence, I guess, in Secretary Esper and the leaders of the armed forces. I do think that you will see a lot, especially this particular season, of the standard nonpartisan do's and don'ts, what you can do during political activities in the Department of Defense for both military and civilian. I think it'll be doubled down. I do think, though, picking up on something Phil said, is that this election season, especially with the arms race with these retired generals, and remember, there are a couple thousand. We've only heard from five or six, but there are thousands of them out there, and there'll be letters and so forth. Here's a prediction. Some of the ones that have spoken out recently, when their words get weaponized, I think they're going to not be happy about that. And so then you're going to have this collision, which is the risk that they take when they speak out, especially some of the words are going to be taken out of the larger context. And then they'll have to backtrack on that. And then that'll be weaponized by the other side. So I want to be wrong about this, but I think the general officer corps may not come out of this looking all that good because I think there'll be a lot of back and forth on that. 
And ultimately, I don't think it really has that much effect on the outcome of the election. I think people are looking at bigger issues and voting for different things versus what Admiral X might have said about candidate Y. But the guardrails, yes. Do they need to be emphasized? I agree with Alice that this election, more than any other, they need to be emphasized. But in my mind, there's zero possibility that the military will do something unlawful as a result of the election. If I could wave a magic wand, I would have every single retired general and flag officer who's asked to endorse and who, in fact, signs a letter or makes an endorsement say first, I am representing myself alone, not my former service or the United States military. And just say that explicitly up front. Because one of the things that folks like me worry about is that the average American doesn't really see the difference between a retired admiral and an active duty admiral. And so they see that admiral as speaking on behalf of the Navy. So if that admiral said up front, I'm not speaking on the behalf of the Navy. I'm a private citizen now. And these are my private citizen thoughts. I, that would make me happy. So Charlie says it's unlikely or it's, it's zero chance that there'll be something unlawful that happens. But as a lawyer, it all depends on what you mean by unlawful. And... I think in a healthy civil military relationship or environment, we'd see a healthy debate about what is lawful and whether the parties can get chalk on their cleats or not as they approach some policy objective or do something. But in this environment, I, I honestly think that concept has been twisted so far that we really should be concerned. I mean, DOD has set the precedent now that it will allow the president and vice president to speak at what are nakedly political rallies, or at least deliver nakedly political remarks to military audiences on TV that can then be repurposed for political messaging. We've seen the deployment of active duty military forces to the Southwest border for political reasons. We've seen the Insurrection Act held back. That's a good thing. But we saw a battalion of paratroopers deployed to Fort Belvoir outside of Washington. That's a bad thing. And so I'm really less sanguine than Charlie that we're not going to see more things happen in the months to come that should give us pause. I want to kind of close this episode. There's so many more things we could and should be talking about. But I do think many Americans, they really don't engage civil military relations as a scholarly issue. They probably come across it more than anything in pop culture. And I just wanted to go once around and ask each of you to give your favorite civil military relations movie or scene or interaction. Tell us a little bit about it and why it, it really speaks to you. Why, why don't we start with Alice? Okay, so my favorite changes by the week, really. But most of them uh, come from the West Wing, which surprises no one. And the one I've been thinking about a lot recently, because, uh, lo, we are talking again about the defense budget, is a great scene where the deputy chief of staff's assistant, Donna, has a little crush on a Navy commander who is now assigned to the uh, WAMO, the White House Military Office. And they're having an argument about the defense budget. And the president apparently had said something derogatory about $500 ashtrays, right, which is ripped from the historical headlines. And the commander, who is a submariner, explains to her that we live kind of a different life down there. And he picks up an ashtray and he picks up a hammer and he slams the hammer down onto the ashtray, rather startling her. And the ashtray breaks into three dull pieces. And he explains why. 
the United States Navy has spent an awful lot of money on ashtrays that break into three dull pieces because the last thing you need is glass flying around on the inside of a submarine. And it's just a great scene of his last line is, we lead a little bit of a different life down there and it costs a little bit more money. And it's a, a great moment of sort of a line that a lot of folks say without thought, you know, oh, we spend so much money on the U.S. military and then someone in uniform very politely making a reasoned argument about, well, sometimes it does cost some money, though. So I, I love that scene. <laughs> That's great. Charlie, how about yours? Mine's a few good men. And I think the whole scene, Jack Nicholson on the stand, and it's not true civil military relations, but it goes to show the military mindset that it goes up to a point being a good thing and then it goes off the deep end. You know, the idea that the military is standing watch to permit others to live a lifestyle that they want to live, but yet at the same time, the speaker of that obviously has lost his bearings and has gone too far. And I think it's a good illustration and, and it's worth listening to. I always play for my students and try to get their responses. And Phil, you are also a lawyer like Charlie, also a veteran like Charlie. Is is yours also a few good men? Yeah, it is. But I'm also going to bring up the Pentagon Wars, which is one of my other favorites and the one I use to teach my class on government contracts. And you know, there's this great scene in there with Richard Schiff, who also comes from Alice's favorite show, The West Wing, where he's an army colonel assigned to design a new Bradley fighting vehicle. And every couple of months or couple of years, the generals bring him back in and add for another change and another change and another change. And it's meant to evoke the endless cycle of acquisition, gold plating, and it does so very well. But it also, I think, epitomizes society's relationship with the military, that we're just going to keep shoving money at you. We're not going to tell you what to do or help you with strategy or give you really valuable guidance. We're just going to keep giving money to you and asking you for more. And, you know, I think with humor, the movie shows the folly in that, both from the military side and, and from society's side, and hopefully we can learn from it. Well, those are three really great picks. So Phil Carter, Alice Friend, and Charlie Dunlap, thanks for joining me today. Much more I know to come in the future from all of you in your writings on civil military relations. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.